Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning, church. It's great to see you. Praise the Lord. If you have a Bible, open it to Psalm 122. Psalm 122. As you're finding that text, let me say a few things. First, a word of thankfulness to uh, to many people behind the scenes that over the past 12 weeks, can you believe it's been it's been three months over the past 12 weeks that we have had to gather only virtually online. We've had a, a team of people in the tech booth back there that have been uh, using duct tape and string and sometimes paper clips to keep everything bound together and to push this message out on the internet. And so in particular, I just want to say thanks to our deacon of technology, tech, soundboard, AV, all that. Brandon Barnes has just done a, a wonderful job. Um, don't hug him today because that's against the rules right now. But um, a note of thanks to him and the folks serving back there is, is well-deserved. And also I want to announce... Uh, just a joyful thing in the life of our church. Springer mentioned that we have, uh, are, are gladly are, are putting an elder candidate forward to the membership. Generally, we do this via the, the, the mechanism of a member meeting, but um, we're a little bit behind on those, so we're doing that here on a We are putting forward Chris McGuire as an elder candidate. You can see a picture of Chris McGuire, who, along with his wife, Allison, and three lovely daughters. They've been members of the church for some time. Chris is a teacher and administrator at Brookstone School. He is also the MC of our last few vacation Bible schools. If you've ever seen Chris on stage with about 200 kids in the room, uh, it's a glorious, glorious thing. And so we're putting Chris forward as an elder candidate for consideration for you as members. And on our member meeting on Wednesday night, June 17th, we're going to do a couple things. We're going to receive new members, do some church business, and we're also going to have a time of Q&A where you as members of the church uh, can ask Chris any questions that you want. Of course, you can contact Chris directly and ask him anything that you want about his testimony or his view of the gospel or his, his, um, his heart for the church. Please, you're encouraged to do that. But we'll have a, a, a dedicated time for that on June 17th. And then also a big part of what we're going to do on that member meeting on June 17th is pray as a church for our nation, for our city, for our culture, for this world. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. Well, let me read our text, and then we're going to work our way through this short and powerful psalm that I think is an appropriate word for our first time physically back together and in the middle of really tumult and and chaos in our world as the, the, the nations are raging, and our nation in many ways is raging, and the world is anxious, and this is a word, I think, for us in this moment. So let me read Psalm 122. David writes, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. 
May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us draw closer to him, be formed into his image, grow in Christ as we look at this text together. Pray with me, church. Lord, we need you. We need you. Oh, Lord, how we need you. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us as a church over these past three months that we've been separated physically. We know that we're not all yet gathered together. We long for that day when things will resume to our regular course and manner of worship. Until that time, we thank you for this measured regathering that we're able to to do this morning. Lord, as we come to this text, as we gather together on this Lord's Day, we are all so aware of of the tension and the stress and the anxiety that is in our culture, in our country, really around the world on so many levels. Fears about the virus, stress and anxiety and anger about ethnic relationships and racial tension, political strife, on top of all of the daily fears that we always face living in this fallen world. Lord, sometimes we just don't know what to do but other than to look up and say, where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, who's the maker of heaven and earth. Lord, as we gather this morning, as we work through this psalm, help us, help me. Lord, we feel so inadequate to engage this fallen world. Who is sufficient for these things, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Christ is in us, we confess. And we know that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And we know that you are working all things together for the good of your people and for the ultimate glory of your name. And so we rest in that and we lean into that, Lord, and ask that you would meet us here today in this text. That your Holy Spirit would encourage your people and cause us to know what it means to live and serve for you in these days. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's work through this psalm, and I want us to settle on this last verse that says, I will seek your good and consider before we, before we depart. I want us to consider what that means for us as a local congregation. The context of this, context of this psalm is that it is a song of ascent. It, it's one of the psalms right here starting in Psalm 120 all the way through about the mid-Psalm 130s where they are called songs of ascent, which were meant to be songs for the nation of Israel as they approached the city of Jerusalem for people that lived outside of the holy city as they were coming 
to the holy city for particular acts of worship, whether they were festivals or yearly feasts. The people are going to the holy city. And so that's why David is saying here in verse 1 that he was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. This is a time of worship. We're gathering back together. And they're going to the temple, which was in the middle of the city of Jerusalem, to offer this, this ultimate aspect of worship, to see the sacrifices to be done. And so this is an Old Testament song that is pointing to the New Testament worship. The, the temple is the focus here, the physical temple in Jerusalem in Psalm 122. But it's a kind of shadow that is pointing to the temple that is Christ. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter Two, that he is the temple. And then we read in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are part of this temple as we are grafted into Christ to become part of his body through salvation. And so we see here that this, the application for us is we're not so much coming to a physical temple, although we have, for the first time in weeks, been able to physically gather. But there's a spiritual gathering. And what are we coming to? We are coming to together as a local assembly. We're coming to Christ who is our high priest and our temple and our sacrifice. And in verse 1, David says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. What a privilege it is to gather. May we not take this for granted. Friends, if there's nothing else that these 12 weeks have impressed on our souls, one thing that I hope God has done in me and in us as a church is to either re-emphasize, deepen in our hearts, or for the first time, Make a new believer or an immature believer so acutely aware of how we need each other and how important it is to gather together. We need each other. We are meant to commune. We are part of a body. Christianity, living for Jesus is not an individual sport. Some of us, though, that may be listening, whether you're in here or maybe online, some Christians, I think, in our age have so many options that gathering together with a local church is just another thing to do in a list of competing priorities. Dear ones, let that not be said of you. Let that not be said of this church. We were meant to commune, fight to prioritize the ordinary, the unspectacular, the sometimes boring, the regular rhythm of worship. You need it. You need it. We need it. And I pray that 12 weeks away has entrenched that in our souls. Verse 2, he says, Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together. And so I think it's, 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 it's well within the bounds of, of good theology when we see Jerusalem in the Old Testament and these, these, these verses that speak about gathering to this place, Jerusalem. We see that as a shadow of the New Testament church gathering together around Christ. And so this verse 3 that says that Jerusalem as a, as a city of God's people worshiping, I think has direct application to us as the new covenant people of God, both Jews and Gentiles, that are gathering around Christ, built as a city. And what does he say here about this city? It's bound firmly together. That's a description of the church. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 2, 
verses 1 and 2. Listen to how he, he speaks of our connection together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, and listen to this, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. I take this being bound firmly together in verse 3 of Psalm 122 to be a, a kind of allusion to this picture of the New Testament church that, that Paul is saying here in Colossians 2 that we're knit together, that we are knit together. And friends, we are living in a world that at least in my almost 50 years is being threatened. The unity of the church, the unity of the people of God is being threatened like never before. The world is trying to push us into opposite corners and threaten the firmly bound together body of Christ. Even things as silly as, as how you're responding to the virus. I mean, we have Christians fighting over with one another in, in different parts of our culture about a response to the virus. We have people obviously fighting over racial tension. And by the way, just to cap off 2020, we're going to end this year with a political election, a presidential election, which promises to be just a joy for all of us. <laughs> and friends, all of these things, there's so many things that we can say about them, but I want us to step back as we're looking at this text and I want us to see that there is a spiritual battle going on here. Friends, we may have different opinions on whether or not this thing is valid or that thing is valid or whether we should wear face masks or what all the intricacies of all this racial tension is going on or who we should vote for. But friends, above and beyond and deeper than all of that, there is this truth that you and I, regardless of what part of the city, what our ethnicity is, what culture we come from, what our demographic is, is that we are bound together firmly in Christ because the truest thing about you and me is that we are worshipers of the true king. And so friends, you have to enter into, you have to be in the middle of this culture that is at war with one another, that is trying to pull us apart. We have to settle ourselves with this firm commitment that I am more connected to my brother and sister in Christ, who's on the opposite ends of the spectrum of me politically, who has different views about I do about this virus, who may think very differently about racial tension. I am more connected to them than I am my own blood cousin or brother that doesn't know Jesus. And we are bound firmly together as we come to Jesus. Verse four, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. I love verse four because it just, it just gives us a, 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 a crystallization of the purpose of why we're coming to the Lord, not for ourselves. We're coming to give thanks to the Lord. And it's a city of tribes. In verse 4, it's talking about the different tribes of Israel, which is obviously made up of the ethnic tribes of Israel, the different people that were all Jewish in Israel. But this, I think, is a clear allusion to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 5 when we're coming around the throne, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We are a city of tribes that have become one family that sing the same song of thanks to God. We gather to bless his holy name, not primarily to have our preferences 
met. Verse 5. Oh, this verse 5 is so critical. It says there, speaking of this place, this house of the Lord, where the people of God come to worship God. What happens there? What is there? Verse 5 tells us, there thrones for judgment were set. The thrones of the house of David. Now this concept, this picture of thrones for judgment set in the house of the Lord are so critical. It's a picture of how God's people and the the affairs of God's people and the life together of God's people would be regulated by the righteous ruling of the righteous king. In this sense, in this case, at least historically, it's, it's David. It's the throne of David. It's the rule of the good King David. It's him making right judgments, caring for and ordering the life of the people. But this is a clear picture to the kingship. David is a kind of shadow of the kingship of the true and better King Jesus who is coming to set up the throne of judgment in the house of the Lord. And this word judgment in verse 5, in fact, the word judgment all throughout the Bible is really in many ways often synonymous with this idea and this term that is consuming our culture right now, which is justice. Justice and judgment in the Bible are often intermingled. They're really the same concept. And what is biblical justice as we think about justice in our land? Biblical justice is simply making a right judgment according to God's righteousness. And David, this king, and his throne in his house is to execute justice, to make right judgments according to God's righteousness. But for us primarily, as New Covenant believers, as we come, this this throne that is set up in the house of David, which is the church, which is the, the mercy seat of the King Jesus, justice first must be reconciliation to a holy God. The house of the Lord is a place not primarily of civil order, but of spiritual reconciliation between sinners like us and a holy God. That's where justice begins in the Bible. And that's where the throne of judgment is so important for us to see. Let let me read to you from Romans chapter 3. I know you're thinking it always gets back to Romans. Yes, often it does. But let me read one of the most important paragraphs ever written about this idea of justice. Romans 3, verse 21 through 26. Paul writes, but now the righteousness of God. We might even say, we might even summarize the righteousness of God as the justice of God, the holiness of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So there's this righteous law that is showing us all through the Old Testament that God is holy and we are not. And remember the dilemma of Romans is that how can a holy God reconcile to himself unrighteous people? How will a righteous God make unrighteous people righteous? Because God cannot entertain righteousness and fellowship with himself because if he were to let unrighteousness draw near to himself, he would become unrighteous, but he's not. So how will a righteous God Be in fellowship with unrighteous people. And this is the answer. How will it? Well, it's saying the Old Testament is bearing witness to it. It's pointing to it. What is it? Verse 22. The righteousness of God or the justice of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or made right, reconciled with God by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom, verse 25, God put forward as a propitiation, meaning a wrath-absorbing sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. So what this verse is saying to this point is that God has, has answered the problem, the dilemma of how he in his righteousness will ever be reconciled to our unrighteousness, not because of anything in us, but because of Jesus, his son, whom he puts forward to bear his wrath on our behalf. When you see justice and judgment in the Bible, think primarily and first of yourself and your sin and how the gospel answers the problem of justice and judgment that was barreling down on all of us. And Jesus bears the wrath, the justice of God for us. God puts him forward. He pours out his wrath on Jesus instead of his people. And then he gives the gift of faith whereby his people, now made alive by his sovereign grace, are enabled to put their faith in Jesus. That's called grace. And what does he conclude? He says, this was to show God's righteousness this was to put on display the holiness of God, the grace of God, the mercies of God. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over former sins. And listen to verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. In other words, God has not hedged at all on his holiness and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, he does the act of mercy whereby he justifies the ungodly. So God is righteous and he is merciful and just by making the unrighteous righteous through his son. Friends, on the cross, we see the justice of God meet the mercy of God and we see the glory of the gospel. And that's what goes on in the house of God there, verse 5. Back to our text in Psalm 122. There thrones for judgment were set. That's the mission of the church, to set the primary throne of judgment, which is the display of the gospel to a world that is lost. And friends, that's the primary, the primary view of justice and judgment in the Bible. And now, now, listen to this, don't miss this. Now, those who are justified, those who have received this mercy from God are called to act justly and do justice. This is the message of James 2. This is the message that we've been dwelling on in James. You say you have faith. He says, what good is it if it doesn't, isn't followed by works? You must now live in conjunction with the grace that you have received, the grace that you've received vertically, the mercy that you've received vertically, the justice, the kindness that you've received vertically must bend out horizontally in your life. God has justified Christians. And 
Now, that genuine faith must result in good deeds. And now, those who are justified desire to do justice because their doing of justice gives evidence to being justified. Their doing of justice does not, listen, this is so important, their doing, their acting justly in the world around them does not justify them. It is only God that can do that. But as a reflection of their justification, those who have been justified now are called to do justice. Listen to what Listen to what Moses says about Abraham and what God says to Abraham in Genesis 18, verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And what did he promise Abraham? He promised him blessing and a family And he promised that through Abraham, he would bless all the nations of the earth. And so do you see here, here is the the purpose of the life of a Christian. is to receive the free grace of God. He has chosen Abraham. He's chosen you. He's made you alive. And he's made you alive in Ephesians 2.10 for the good works that he's called us all to walk in. And so he's saying, what are these good works that Abraham and all the children of Abraham walk in to do righteousness and justice? That's the life of the Christian. Here's the challenge, friends, that we're in, in the middle of right now as a culture, even as a church. We have political and cultural forces that are doing all they can to confuse and to obscure the clarity of that gospel justice. We have political forces, we have cultural forces that will emphasize one aspect of justice to the detriment of others. And they demand these forces, which I think are principalities and powers, they demand the allegiance of God's people. Political forces on the right emphasize justice as rightly punishing wrongdoers. Political forces on the left tend to emphasize justice as lifting up and caring for those who are wronged by oppression. Friends, both of those things are true. The Bible emphasizes both. And the spiritual battle that's going on, I think, in the church is that we have cultural forces that are demanding allegiance, full allegiance to either the North Pole or the South. That's not where the Christian life is lived. We must align ourselves more closely with the gospel than earthly forces. What does verse six and seven say? We'll keep going now. So he says, here's this throne of judgment that's set up. And this throne of judgment, friends, is the gospel. This is how sinners can be reconciled to a holy God. Now, this throne of judgment that the people come to and they receive the mercy of God from the throne of judgment. Now, what are the people to do after they have come to worship? Well, 6, 7, and 8 of our Psalm 122 give us an answer of now what the worshipers are to do as they come out of worship. Verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they, be, may they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls 
and security within your towers. Pray. Look, I'm just going to confess something to you. Uh, Prayer is often hard for me. We are doers. We want to make things happen. We scurry around thinking about things that we have to prep and this and that and the other. And often the last inclination for people who like to do things is to sit and to pray and to trust in the Lord. And I think as I look back on the 15 years of this church, and by the way, happy birthday, uh, Crosspoint. We celebrated our 15th birthday under corona quarantine. It happened back in April. You're 15 years old. Happy birthday. But as I look back on the 15 years of our church, one of the regrets that I have and one of the ways that I feel very chastened by the Holy Spirit in my pastoral leadership is sometimes a negligence, not all the time, but sometimes a negligence to pray and to cry out to the Lord for His grace, for His help. And it's notable here that the first instinct of the psalmist after this pinnacle of coming to the throne of God is to come out of that saying, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of God's people. Pray for the peace of the church. And what's the content of the prayer? May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. We're going to gather on June 17th for a member meeting. I, I just, I'm pleading with you, if you're a member of Crosspoint, and if you're not, you're welcome to come to that as well, but if you're a member of Crosspoint, please, at least one representative from your household, come to that, and let's pray. Friends, God's people oftentimes are regrettably marked by watching the world rather than praying for the world. We watch the world on these cable news networks and on these Facebook and social media apps that are that are discipling us and we spend hours upon hours of taking in information which is always skewed and we spend very little time actually coming together as God's people praying and we wonder why we feel so beleaguered and weak. Friends, that's why. So can we come, can we pray, can we Come together and pray for God to be gracious to us, to give us wisdom as a church, that we would love one another, that we would be a voice, a gospel voice of the mercy of Christ to those that are disenfranchised, to those that are confused, to those that are scared, to those that are angry, to everyone in any any corner of our society, that the church would be a wise and winsome witness of the gospel in our city. And then verse 8 and 9, he says, For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord. Listen to this commitment. The psalmist says, David says, I will seek your good. This is what, this is what the people of God come out of. This is what they come out of corporate worship saying to one another. Socially distanced in this case. We, have, we might have to shout it to one another across the foyer. We say to one another, I will seek your good. To my brothers and sisters who I'm knit firmly together with, who are people not like me necessarily culturally, I will seek your good. So here's the question that we end on. Four thoughts that I'm working through in my own heart. How can we seek one another's good? How can we as believers together in a local church seek one another's good in this 
in this culture of chaos and anxiety and stress, first, resist assuming the worst of others. Resist assuming the worst of others. I mentioned earlier that I think one of the, the, the tactics of the enemy in our age is that many of us, to one degree or another, are being discipled by cultural forces, news outlets, social media. And there are forces of wickedness in every political sphere, in every political spectrum, in every political party, in every news outlet. And one of the things, one of the ways that I think the enemy is prowling about like a lion seeking whom he may devour is he is discipling us into this mindset that will cause us to assume the worst of other people and paint with broad brushes and think that these people, all of these people in this particular group, all think this way. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. It doesn't mean that love is naive and uninformed, but it does mean that love resists, gospel love resists assuming the worst of others. Think about where you are in the cultural political sphere and think about when you see that news report about something happening in some other city or even in our city. Is your heart drawn to classify demographics and people and put all of them in that same bucket and say, if only they would see it this way. Friends, that is the ideology of hell. It's not the ideology of the Bible. The second way we can seek one another's good is to beware of the fear of man. Beware of the fear of man. I'm so aware of this as a pastor. I know my own heart. I confess to you that sometimes it's very difficult to discern in my own heart what is just compassion and sensitivity and caring for somebody or actually kind of me seeking their approval. Sometimes those two things feel very similar in my heart. Does that make sense to you? And I, I, often, I often, in interactions with people pastorally, walk away from those interactions critiquing myself, saying, was I being compassionate? Or was I, was I really seeking their approval? What, what was it? Beware of the fear of man. Listen, listen to what John says in John chapter 12 as a critique of these religious authorities that in one sense wanted to follow Jesus but were torn because of the fear of man. Listen to this, John chapter 12, verse 42 through 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Listen to verse 43. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And I want to say that I think I and we are prone to this fear of man. We have boiled down righteous action into just sort of posting something on Facebook 
which is a kind of way of saying to everybody else, like, oh, I'm on the right side of this issue. And really sometimes what's behind that is us just wanting to signal to everybody else that we're okay, but it's not truly seeking to serve the Lord. It's more done out of a fear of being viewed in a wrong way than serving God. And that, that is in my hearts, friends. And I think it's in the hearts of many Christians. Cultural forces will demand that you agree with them. And every subculture has its own pressures. And every Christian is part of some subculture. And it is the mark of a mature Christian to recognize what the pressures are in your subcultures, whether you're conservative or liberal, black or white, male or female or whatever, and to be discerning and to not give in to the fear of man. Which leads me to the third way that we can do one another good. And friends, I think this is just so important. Don't give your allegiance to anyone but the Lord. We, need, we must not give our allegiance to anyone but the Lord. Listen to this, this, uh, this scene where Jesus is being challenged by these two political parties in Mark chapter 12. It's the famous scene where Jesus has handed a coin and they're asking him about whether or not they should pay taxes and Jesus deflects and takes it to the gospel. But let me, let me read to you a few verses from Mark chapter 12. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So that's notable. The Pharisees were ultra-right conservative Jewish zealots, and the Herodians were people that were selling out to Rome. So you talk about people on the opposite ends of the political spectrum are coming to Jesus. So basically, Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow, or whatever her name is, they're coming to Jesus. They're coming to him to trap him in his talk. This is what the world does. It takes, it takes enemies and aligns them against the people of God, even unwittingly. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. But truly, teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And then Jesus says, listen, he takes him to another. He says, no, no, no. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but give unto God what is God's. And he goes straight to the gospel. Here's the point I'm making, friends, is that political forces, cultural forces, will demand all of our allegiance and as Christians, we must be able to say more than one thing with nuance to our culture. So let me just put a finger on it as we draw to a close. Christians must be able to say that racism in any form is wicked and evil and straight from the pits of hell. Christians likewise must be able to say that any form of brutality from any form of authority figure is wicked and evil and must be condemned and justly judged. Christians must be able to say, praise God for the overwhelming vast majority of law enforcement officers who protect our, our cities and our country so nobly. 
Christians must be able to say, thank God for police officers and public servants who put themselves in harm's way. Christians must be able to not be pulled to one pole or the other and to, to, to be part of a political lobby. Christians must be able to say that not everyone protesting is anti-government or lawless. Christians must be able to say that those that are looting and rioting are lawless people that should be judged. These are things that a, that a Bible-minded, Christ-centered, nuanced, mercy, compassion-filled Christian must be able to say. And we must resist the Herodians and the Pharisees that say, come all the way over to my side of the street and only say the things that I want you to say. That's no way to live the Christian life. We must be able to say to each political party and to every president, including this one, that that is wrong or this is not right. And we must resist making an idol out of political power or being right. Which leads me to the fourth and final way that we seek one another's good. We must know, remember, and apply the gospel graciously. Friends, this is a lens through which we must view all of life in our current situation, the coronavirus, the ethnic tension, the political chaos. We must remember the gospel. We must know it, and we must look at the world through that lens. You see, I, I must know the gospel. I must remember the gospel for my own soul. I remember that I was a sinner bound for hell, but not because of anything good in me, but because of God's mercy, he saved me, not because of anything I have done, but because of what Christ has done. He took my dead heart. He made it alive. He gave me faith whereby I could put my trust in Jesus. And he put his Holy Spirit in me. And now he is renewing me day by day, transforming me into the image of Christ. Until that day when he will bring me finally and fully home. And as I look at my own soul, as I remember what God has done for me, it gives me a lens through which I can view all of life. And I look at my fellow man, and I realize I have a good theology of the doctrine of man, and I realize that mankind is fallen. People are sinful. People are dead in their sins. And what they need is the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And when I say people need the gospel, don't just hear me say, oh, well, we need to get them to church and this guy needs to preach and pray and this person, I need to get them to listen to this YouTube video or that thing. No, friends, every Christian has the responsibility to wisely apply and deploy the gospel in their spheres of influence. Friends, you can do that. You can argue with people. You can, you can reason with people. You can compassionately apply the good news of the gospel to every interaction that you face in this culture today. And that is the height of seeking the good of your neighbor. Practically, what might that look like? Loving one another through hospitality. Starting in this church people in this church. Hospitality is a combination of two Greek words that mean the love of strangers. We are to practice hospitality. One practical thing coming out of this psalm and this Sunday for us might be to find somebody in this church who's not like us, who's from a different subculture, and to practice hospitality. If you don't have a place to bring them to, to feed them a meal, maybe you go somewhere with them. 
and you hear their story and you pray for them and you say to them, we are bound firmly together in Christ and that's the truest thing about you and me. Let's work from there and let's seek how we may do one another good. And Practically coming out of this, we as a church, and I am calling us, the elders together I know are calling us to pray more together. And we'll start that on June 17th. The Lord will help us. The Lord will bring us all the way home. And the Lord will be glorified amongst his people. Let me pray. Lord, as we come now to sing a final song, to think about this word, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. and Give us the wisdom that you call us to ask for in James. You do not call your people to panic or fear or anxiety. And you certainly do not call us to to assume the worst of our brothers and sisters. You don't call us to the fear of man or to give our allegiance to any principality or power. You call us to know, to remember, and to apply the good news of the gospel. To receive your justification And then, in as much as we can, act justly in our individual lives. Lord, help us do this as your people. Help us do this as a church. And be glorified in our little body as we regather in the coming weeks and as we seek to live for you. In the middle of a fretful, an anxious and angry world. Lord, you are up to good and we rest in that. Do good through us for the sake of the glory of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.